Shut up and sit down. The real problem is not whether machines think, but whether men do. It went up. It went up to the cloud. And you can't get it down from the cloud? Nobody understands the cloud. It's a mystery. Master the tools and technology that will change the way we do just about everything. Welcome to the gig. Hey there, thanks for joining us for the gig. And happy 2016 to you. Glad we can kick off another year together. We're a couple weeks into the new year, and already the data breach announcements are pouring in. And just a couple days ago, the UK electronica band Faithless suffered a data breach, resulting in the personal data of 20,000 or so fans exposed. So, looks like another year of infosec misery, but of course, it's not all doom and gloom. Solution providers are coming up with innovative approaches to security, and Bromium is uh, one such company. They use micro-virtualization to isolate each task discreetly, thereby enabling better security through software-enabled granularity. We spoke to Bromium's CTO and co-founder Simon Crosby to learn more about the Cupertino-based startup's offering and why their model for InfoSec may result in fewer data breaches and security compromises. So check it out. Simon. Hey, Simon. How are you? Thank you. How are you? Uh, not too bad. Hey, I really uh, appreciate you taking the time out to be on our podcast. I know you're a busy guy. So Simon Crosby is the CTO and co-founder of Bromium, a security startup focusing on micro-virtualization as a way to protect enterprise desktops from malware, viruses, and other nasty things of that nature. Before jumping into what your company does, something we like to do on the gig here is uh, trace our guests' roots to find out how they got um, how they got started and, and kind of how they ended up where they are now. How did you get started in technology? Um, well, I grew up in South Africa. I, um, there was a particularly evil part of South Africa's history during which I can say I escaped. And I went to Cambridge University in the UK to do a PhD in computer science. Um, and basically everything's come out of there. I lectured at Cambridge for a while and then I started doing startups. This is my number four startup. Um, so the previous one you might be aware of is the Zen Hypervisor. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we do at Bromium is based on what we did at Zen. So um, out of the enormous amount of intellectual property and you know research that's come out of Cambridge, I've managed to... Uh, what was the nature of your research at, at Cambridge? So I was um, one of two people who ran a group which is essentially um, uh, systems, the systems group, systems research, which we built secure operating systems, um, did a lot of network performance uh, stuff. We built um, network switches and various other things. I, I think the biggest group was when I was there was about 50 or so people, PhD students and research associates doing uh, various bits of research. Funnily enough, my first company did software-defined networking about 10 years too early. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, it's good to see good ideas come back around. Absolutely, yeah. SDN is definitely uh, front and center now. So tell me about Bromium. I, I know virtualization is not its not a new concept, and um, many companies right now have, are building security solutions around taking advantage of isolation as a form of protection. How is Bromium different? Um, in many ways, not different. Let's embrace all of that. You know, and, and let me start with VMware. Sure. They're doing a great job telling this fabulous story around micro-segmentation of the network. And in a, in a sense, micro-isolation, which is one app per VM, they own the execution context. They get to see how it executes. They own its storage, and they own its network. And it turns out that that, which they call the Goldilocks zone, turns out to be a great place to solve the security problem because you're intimately engaged with execution and so on. So they, they do all that for server-side apps. And by the way, it's really awesome to see the Docker people go down the same path. CoreOS, for example, is embracing the use of virtualization to do to solve some of these problems. Okay, let's step back a bit. 
if history didn't end, um, we now are in the third generation of hardware support, CPU support for virtualization, which is incredibly powerful stuff and means that hypervisors can be much more lightweight than they used to be. Indeed, you could even think of VMware ESX as being somewhat bloated given what the hardware can do today. ZenSource was built by Citrix and we went off and did all this virtual desktop stuff and then started applying the concept of virtualization on clients. Now, everybody is familiar with VirtualBox. A lot of devs use it for mm -hmm. VMware Workstation or Parallels or whatever. I want you to just work with that model in your head. Forget the idea of running a separate VM. In our context, what we wanted to do was use all of the power of hardware support for virtualization, which is on the, on the CPU, instead of virtual machines, that is another operating system and each app or apps, use all of that hardware machinery to hardware isolate individual tasks within one operating system. So yep. the extension concept of virtualization, so I don't have to have lots and lots of independent VMs filling up memory um, and filling up storage and everything else. Let's just use this to hardware isolate individual tasks. Now, when we started Brumium, we have to think that this is the perfection of desktop virtualization. But it turned out that the use case is primarily security, and our buyer is security. Um, and so here's what we do. You, you're probably familiar with a threat model, which essentially says the whitelisting notion for protection says, hey, let's go and whitelist all things that might be able to run at any point. If anything else goes up, it's clearly bad. The problem with the whitelist model is that um, actually you can whitelist something at the end of that, all you know is that it's vulnerable. Right. You don't know that, that it's good. You just know that it could be attacked and could be taken over by some bad stuff. And then you're vulnerable again, okay? Right. Um, more than that, ultimately, you, you end up with this horrible gray area of things which naturally show up and need to execute. So one of those, the JavaScript that ever showed up in your, in your browser or anything else. So any H.264 stuff or so any media that ever get interpreted and run on the endpoint uh, in Java, any one of these things, flash PDF, all of these contain virtual machines and their basic execution content, contact. Um, the same is true for all of the security mindsets, so documents, spreadsheets, and so on and so on. Okay. And so ultimately, it is the content that defines the security profile or the lack of the need to not trust. So Bromium's approach is actually to say something very similar to how we as humans operate. Right. On a day by day basis. If I bump into you on the street, I would, might, you and I might have a great conversation, but I'm not going to tell you my bank account number and your password. Okay? And right. so the principle there is it's not that I distrust you, I need to talk to you. I want to talk to you about the weather and various other things. I just don't bring any information into that context that is not necessary. And that's called least privilege. And that's the way that operating systems are supposed to work. It's widely used in, in the intelligence community and everything else. It's also known as need to know. And the model of the Bramian uses is this. Whenever I interact with any content from outside my machine, I will isolate it in a very strict way. And we do that in this little structure called a micro VM, essentially hardware isolated application pass. And in the context of that micro VM, <clears throat> the only information that is present is what is needed for the task. So it just says tab in my browser and I'm browsing to yahoo.com. The only thing that needs to be there is the cookie for yahoo.com and perhaps some DOM storage, but nothing else, okay? More than that, I can do various other things like randomized user ID, um, you know, clear up any security credentials, provide no access to the SAM, and so on and so on, okay? No access to USB, you can't turn on the camera or the mic, you can't access the frame buffer. All those things are, you know, fall out as a consequence of, of virtualization. 
Right. Okay. So basically, we use the principle of virtualization. We apply it in a very granular way, great density and great speed, individual application tasks. So let's make some numbers clear on a standard PC. Well, actually, I have an 8 gig Core i5. Mm-hmm. I can get 200 microvm. Okay. They cost me on my device uh, 15 milliseconds to create. Okay. Now, it turns out that if I click on URL, um, it's just a, a bit.ly. That's owned by, owned by Twitter. But anyway, bit.ly or something, .ly, right? right. I'm going to take several redirects through the web. Each one of those goes into its own independent microvian. And on a redirect, we throw away the previous microvian and, and redo it, right? Right. And we can throw out four or five microvians, render a web page in front of you, and you will still not know that a microvian was there. Okay, so there's no interference on the user, in the user experience. Why? Because actually the application performance is dominated by the latency of the web and not by the business of getting microvms up because they're very cheap. Right. And so it turns out applications, for example, Word or something, running in microvm, run faster than they would natively on your desktop. Huh. Okay, so the user experience, the question is, what sort of user experience can you give? Can you give an unchanged user experience? The answer is yes, you can. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and indeed, you can go further, whereas traditionally something came, you downloaded an untrusted doc and you tried to edit it, you might get a warning from your operating system saying, hey, this thing came from the outside, click to edit, which essentially elevates its privileges at that point. We never have to do that. You can interact with the app, do whatever you want in a microRM, save it and everything else. It's just never going to be trusted. And if you happen to save untrustworthy content on the endpoint, we're going to wrap it with metadata and insist that if you ever open it, it always goes in new microbit. Got it. So these ephemeral isolation units that you wrap around applications and their content on the fly. You can actually uh, attach policies to these um, from a... Like, yes, per, okay. you can. And, and let me explain a couple of reasons why it's important to think of those. Let's say I uh, want to print an untrusted website. Well, if I throw this thing at the, at the printer or I say an untrusted PDF document, it could attack my printer and copy all the pages and send them to the bad guy. Right. right? So essentially... Anything that goes from the untrusted domain to something more privileged needs to be flattened or format converted. So we would flatten that thing and do essentially base XPS. We use XPS by default, but you could just basically say pixels, take a single untrusted file, you know, off to the printer, manage the print dialog and print process for you. Similarly, the boundary between the the clipboard has to be carefully thought through. Malware must never be able to manipulate the clipboard to get content out of the system that therefore only a user could ever do anything that relates to the clipboard. If I copy an image from Google Image Search, which is a JPEG, into a, say, a PowerPoint or document I'm writing, we force it through a document, through a conversion. It might start as a JPEG, it'll show up as a PNG, okay? Right. And rather copying from untrusted to trusted or high side um, is different, it's asymmetric, from copying from high to low. That is, can I take a file that is perhaps an enterprise file of high value and attach it to Gmail? Okay, so there are policies that, that live at this boundary, which are important in terms of Limit. There's another area which is important, and that's networking. So microfilm is a rarefied, anonymized environment, and we own its network. I might have 200 of them on, on my endpoint. Each one of them lives in some randomized NATed IP address land. It has no awareness of the host OS or anything else, and no access to the things that I value. Mm-hmm. So from within a microvm, it cannot do a DNS request or send an IP datagram onto my intranet in my high-value SaaS sites, right. like my bank or salesforce.com, because I don't want it to. And so 
essentially what you end up doing is ensuring that you know you hide things that you want to protect from microbiomes. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and policy applies there too. So clearly, this is, this is a boon for, for IT administrators and, and uh, security professionals. Is there a consumer grade product available or in development? No. So let me. But I'm going to give you an analogy. So I've described a very sophisticated system, um, and you you might imagine if I changed my accent. Actually, I wouldn't have to change my accent that much because Elon Musk also grew up in South Africa. But imagine I was Elon Musk, and I just described to you the innards of a Tesla. And now you say, wow, that's pretty awesome. I want some. You're a sophisticated person. You get security, and you get the value of virtualization applied to solve and help this problem. Okay? Right. Great. But all Tesla-like in the sense that I've got to get you to believe that that next-gen tech is awesome. You know, the of a better gas much, even though there's electrical stuff in there. And so the question you've asked me is, what is a Prius? Okay. Mm-hmm. How do I get better gas mileage without having to explain to you all this cool stuff about VMs? And the answer there comes from Birmingham working with Microsoft. Um, we are a Microsoft technology partner and have had worked with Microsoft for many years um, at a previous level deep in the innards of Windows. Um, and now I want to step back and, and describe to you generally the way that virtualization ought to evolve and is evolving. Microvirtualization is a useful extension of what a hypervisor can do, and any hypervisor ought to be able to do it, okay? That right. is, MicroZen, which we use, can run traditional plan VMs, as well as little hardware-isolated application tasks. And in general, this is a useful contract construct in many situations. So, for example, in the cloud, I might want to hardware-isolate my Docker containers from each other, okay? Hardware right. multi-tenancy for Docker containers. It's a cool thing. Yeah. <laughs> the core OS guys, the core OS guys are now on this on this plan, and I love it, right? Yeah. And VMware is on this plan too. If you go and look at the project Photon that they talked about at VMworld, Microsoft is very interested in this use case too. And so let me step back and just make a broader prediction about properties of hypervisors. Hypervisors in future will be able to do both of these things. They'll be able to do lightweight, you know, hardware-isolated things, and they'll be able to run traditional VMs. Right. Okay. And we work with Microsoft to enable those use cases. The first results of that collaboration are in Windows 10 already. I can explain how that works, but also available in technical preview in, say, Windows Server 2016 TP4, which is out already. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, um, the idea here is to extend the notion of hypervisors who can do these lightweight virtualization constructs. In Microsoft terminology, they, they call that uh, Windows Hyper-V containers is what they call them, but also to use microVMs within the operating system to harden it. And now let me give you an example of that. In Windows 10, there is a mode, if you use it, it turns on Hyper-V, which is the hypervisor. Mm-hmm. And magically, some very important things happen. The uh, LFAS, the local security authority uh, on Windows, the service, moves into a microVM as the Windows Code Integrity Service. It accesses all the APIs from Windows. If you completely own the OS, up to them with ring zero privileges, you still couldn't get access to those two services. Okay? They're hidden from you. You just don't ever see them. Okay, and so the idea there is that you can eliminate past hash attacks and various other nasty things that today were for Windows systems. It doesn't say that Windows is now invulnerable. It just says that certain use cases are better, right? You, right. you can attack vectors are eliminated. And so in general, the idea of applying more rigorous notions of isolation within the operating system is a generally good trend uh, that we'll see more broadly adopted. Sometimes using pictures like BT and sometimes using, you know, next-gen sandboxes like mm-hmm. the Windows Universal App Sandbox, which is pretty darn good as far as I'm aware, like the iOS sandbox, right? Mm-hmm. Things that are written to be better are better. So 
in general, I, I expect that operating systems will start to use these constructs to become more secure by protecting their key services and data structures and offering an ability for applications to isolate themselves from both the operating system and from each other. Uh, we took the liberty of going to social for some questions from the general IT public. Would you, uh, would you mind field? <laughs> uh, would you mind fielding a few of these? Strap. I'll just no, go for it. That's cool, terrific. cool. Thank you. Just throwing a couple here. So the first one is, uh, what is the timeline for general exe wrapping? So today, if, you, if you're using our product and you downloaded what you thought was a screensaver and it turned out to be BitLocker, it's in a microgram. Okay. okay. That's just the way it works. And now the question is this. Ultimately, we're walking a boundary between user experience and what the user wants to achieve and what's reasonable for a particular security posture, right? right. So, the user could download what is really a screensaver, right? It goes in a microbeam. Now, what the heck does that mean? Right? What does it mean there? And is there a valid use case? And so, the answer is there comes a point at which an application might need to move out of an isolated construct. Um, you can think of various applications that would need that. For example, things going to the file system. If it's an isolated construct, the file system isn't there for it to browse, right? Right. Um, and so, at that point, what you want to do is you want to say, hey, I am going to have to give this thing more access, but I'm going to verify. At that point, you plug in your call over and you watch it like a rock when it runs. If it does anything wrong, you're now, you know, hopefully you're going to see that and scream and everything else. And you can maybe do some automatic uh, protection of the system. But at that point, you probably are going to have to reinstall the operating system. Right. right? Okay. Whereas right now, if something goes wrong in a microbeam, you just don't care. Because the moment that I close the task or the task ends, the whole thing gets thrown away and zeros get written to the isolated memory. I want to just worthwhile pointing out that there is a really important change that occurs in the notion of detection once you use isolation here. Once you're in a very rigorous protection boundary, which is courtesy of micro-virtualization, you don't have to detect bad the way that traditional detection suites have to. Right? I mean, if I'm macro-semantic, I have to detect bad before bad happens. That's the whole point. Now, I'm very, I'm in a very strong posture. Nothing can be stolen, and I just don't care. Mm -hmm. So I can wait for bad to happen, okay? Right. And so let's put that back into the context of you and me bumping to each other on the street, right? Night chatting, we're talking about the weather and it's a bit heater. There's nothing for you to really steal from me. You still don't know if I'm good or bad, but you would know that I'm bad really quickly if I hit you on the nose. Right. Okay? At which point, pretty blindly obvious that I'm a bad guy. Now, what we do is every time we create a microbeam, we record everything. Every pack, every memory, every change in the process, privilege changes. Absolutely everything. And the moment it goes bad, just send all that up to the sock, and the whole thing just gets remediated off the endpoint, which is essentially just the whole microbeam just gets blitzed. Right. And so what you get is very, very low false positive, highly detailed forensics in real time, which is a cool feature. So the next question, uh, since you consider even one breach a failure and you've never been breached, how many patches and revisions <laughs> have you had to make to your software logical model? Yeah. That's a good question. So um, when Shabbat, a bad guy shows up in a microBM, what's the attack surface of the system? The bad guy either breaks the CPU, which we'll just assume is extraordinarily difficult, or attacks the microvisor, okay? Mm -hmm. And that interface there is ordered 10,000 lines wide. 
it's manically protected. Okay, we fuzz it. We have a whole team of guys whose whose job it is to simply atta- to attack that thing all the time. And by the way, at, at at the end of the day, you should still believe nothing that I say. Mm-hmm. That is, you have to have an independent source of wisdom around this. So here's what we do around that. We hand off the code base, source code, and product to the world's leading agencies and uh, commercial folks to pen test and break every year. Okay. Thus far, nobody has broken it or found source code flaws. That doesn't mean that it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Okay. It just means that it's way hard to break. Yep. As in, so way hard that nobody managed it yet. Okay. Right. So, certainly not a full bullet, but just massively reducing the attack service as virtualization allows you to do. Um, so now the key question is, what about vulnerabilities? There, Zen is right from Zen, but fortunately, because of the way we use it, we don't have to um, don't have to deal with any of the power virtualized code, and we don't have to deal with any of the horrible emulation of legacy devices, because in our model, all the devices are actually run by the host OS, which could be Mac OS or Windows, right? Mm-hmm. And so ultimately, um, if you looked at, say, the vulnerabilities that have popped up in Zen over the last um, couple of years, um, you know, fortunately, none of them applied to, to MicroZen. And that is, we've managed to throw away the part of the Zen code base, which was perhaps most um, attractive to an attacker because these, you know, these emulation interfaces are always horrible and, and difficult to secure. So we've been fortunate thus far in that we haven't um, then, um, haven't had to patch in, in practice, we're constantly vigilant. And by the way, you know, there is the last thing to do would be to assert that that, that you're great. You know, right. <laughs> it's something we have to continually protect and ensure that um, that we do a great job. On. I want to just be very clear. Even in the event that something did break out of the hypervisor and broke through and onto the running uh, host OS, we, we have instrumentation in the host too specifically aimed to deal with two use cases. One is the, the, the need to eventually trust but verify some execution. Mm-hmm. And the other one is to deal with this possibility that if something finally broke through, you would have endpoint monitoring, um, which has full knowledge of all known bad, plus an ability to instrument the operating system in ways used by advanced attackers um, so that you would have a possibility of detecting that and screaming blue murder. Last but not least, by the way, this is a question from us. Favorite album of all time? As in music album? As in music album. Ooh, that's hard. Yes. You know, uh, Bach, Toccata, and Fugue. Sorry. <laughs> a close second would be Mozart's Requiem, but, you know, you know, and that's not the only kind of music I listen to, but uh, pretty well. Hey, Simon, I, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time out to join us on the gig. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Have a good evening. Thanks. Bye-bye. That was Gig Episode 14. Special thanks to Simon Crosby for joining us. And special thanks to you for tuning in for another year of the gig. For more information about DevOps, information security, and tips on how to make your organization more digitally resilient, check out scriptrock.com. Catch you next time.